This podcast is a ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Trinity Baptist Church exists to exalt God in worship, to equip disciples, and to evangelize the lost. For more information about our church, just visit our website at trinity3e.org. As Mark has shared with you, I work with Summit Leadership Foundation in Johnson City. And for the last nine years, I've been the director there of the Church Mobilization Network. I was actually hired to begin that network. And it's a network of now 42 churches that are in this region. Trinity Baptist is one of those churches. And the whole point of the network is to just bring church leaders together so that we can share ministry ideas, share ministry resources, and get people within churches connected to ways they can serve, be mobilized, right, into the community for the benefit of our Lord and Savior. And Mark, nine years ago, in his wisdom and leadership um, intentionality, when he heard about the Church Mobilization Network, he said, we got to be a part of that. That is something I want this church to be connected to. That's how he and I got to know one another, and uh, that's why he came knocking just a few weeks ago and said, hey, I got this situation coming up. Would you mind helping me out? So I'm, I'm privileged to be here, thankful. And I'm also thankful for each of you. Because I watched last week's sermon, you know, the Song of Solomon. When Mark, when he got finished, he walked right down there, stood right there, and told everybody that he was going to be gone and you were going to have a substitute teacher. And you all came, right? You're still here. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. So thank you. Seriously, you, you bless me and honor me with your very presence. And I appreciate that. Will you join me real quickly in prayer? Lord, As we come before you and spend some time looking at what you have done in history, may we be more in awe of you than we are now. Help this time together over the next 20, 25 minutes. Remind us of just how big you are, how much you move in history, and how you are advancing everything toward your kingdom, and that we have the privilege to be a part of it. So we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So a quick show of hands. Right down the road, you have a a little uh, thing that's really cool called the Jonesboro Repertory Theater. And if you hopped in your car and you got on 81 and you drove about an hour and you went to Abingdon, there's another cool little venue called the Barter Theater. And just out of curiosity, a show of hands... How many people here have been to either the Jonesboro Repertory Theater or Barter Theater? Raise them high. Wow, good. Okay, so that's like three-quarters of the room. That's amazing. So we've got something in common. I also am a theater goer and theater lover. Myself and my family, we have attended both places. We're financial supporters of local theater because we just think it's so enriching to have that in our community. So thank you for supporting local theater as well. Now, if you go to Barter Theater especially, there is another group of people that are on that stage that you do not see by design. They wear black. They're all mic'd up and headsetted in. They usually are kind of around the corners, but they're the production team. They're the people that are making sure that the tape marks are on the stage where the actors need them so the actors know where to go. They're the ones setting up the the, the clothing changes backstage so that when folks come out in different attire, that's how that happens. And they're the ones that are making sure that all of the pieces and parts that need to be moved around on the stage happen. 
And when the curtain goes down at the end of the first act, and we have what we call it intermission, right? And we sit there in our seats, and there's nothing really happening, we don't think. We don't hear anything. We don't see anything. And then the curtain goes up at the beginning of the second act, and we see for the first time, wow, there has been a lot of intentional activity that's been happening on that stage because things have changed, and the actors come out, and they have different clothing on, and wow, a lot of things have changed. And if we approach our Bibles and use that analogy, the Old Testament would be Act 1, and the New Testament would be Act 2. And in my Bible, and just out of curiosity, I checked your pew Bibles as well, and they're the same way. When you open the Bible up to the last page of Malachi, you turn it. There's a single page that says New Testament. You turn that, and here we go. One page separates the two Testaments. Well, in historical sense, that one page represents 400 years. 400 years, 20 generations of time that passed. The people that lived at the beginning didn't see the end. The people that lived near the end didn't see the beginning. But there's a name for this period of time, a specific name, kind of a scholarly name, right? It's your 10-cent word of the day. And the name is the intertestamental period. So that is the term that is used for these four centuries, the intertestamental period. There's another term that you often hear about this time. It's called the silent years. Silent because we do not have a prophetic word from God coming to the Hebrew people during this time. But we should not confuse silence with stillness. Because although the voice of God was silent for these 400 years, the hand of God was actively directing the course of events over these four centuries and changing the landscape, both geopolitically, culturally, and religiously. Now, this message is going to be unique today because it's more about the Bible than it is a message from the Bible. And so you might ask yourself, well, you know, Eric, why actually, why should we even know about what happened? Because you're better able to understand the scriptures of the New Testament, especially some of the specific ones we'll share today, if you understand the context of what was happening at the time that these people wrote this information down. And I think at the end of our time today, you will have a greater respect and awe of God when you see what he was up to, and you will have much better clarity between this critical bridge of time that connects our two testaments. Because from God's point of view, he did it perfectly. He did it perfectly because he told us that. The Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians wrote this in Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now that word there for time that is translated the fullness of time is a word that is very specific. It means the totality of a period of time, with the implication that it has been brought to its end. So we're not talking about time just big and great and moving forward. We're talking about an identified finite period of time that in God's perspective came to an end 
and it's at the end of that fullness of period of time that God brought Jesus onto the scene. So, logically, we need to ask ourselves, well, what in the world happened? Why was this the perfect time? What went on that made this the time for Jesus to show up? And that's what we're going to spend our time talking about this morning. This period of time is really broken into three influences that spanned it. One was the Greek period, one was the Maccabean period, and one was the Roman period. So first, the Greek period. When the ministry of Malachi, the final Old Testament prophet, ends in the year 420 B.C., Persia is the dominant world force. But then comes along a leader whose political and military domination was so, influ was so influential and dramatic that it changed the landscape of the world and has influenced the way you and I think and speak still today. His name was Alexander, and we know him better by his title, Alexander the Great. When Alexander defeats Darius of Persia, the world begins to experience profound change, and this became Alexander's kingdom. It stretched, of course, he was Greek, right? So it stretches from current-day Greece around the eastern edge of the Mediterranean down halfway through Egypt and east all the way through modern-day Syria, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, and he didn't stop until he hit the Himalayan mountains, which prevented him from going into India and China. That is quite a swath of land. His kingdom remained the dominant world power until 167 B.C., and he required, and this is the key, he required that the Greek way of life be adopted by everyone he conquered. Everybody who was non-Greek during that period of time was influenced by Greek culture, and there's a term for that. It's called Hellenization. Hellenization. Hellenism is the process of adopting Greek culture, religion, language, and identity as the standard for anyone living under its rule. Even when the Greek influence was later overtaken by the next world power that was Rome, the Romans kept several pieces of that Greek culture, namely their language and their philosophy. The Jewish people, however, never fully accepted Hellenism, as we will soon learn, and they actively fought against it. For Christians, the most important thing that we need to know about this Hellenization period of time is the Greek language, because Koine Greek was the form of Greek that was used throughout the empire and became the common language of the world even after the rise of the Roman Empire. Although Latin within the Roman Empire was the language of business, all common people within the Roman Empire spoke Greek as their everyday language. And we can get a sense of the domination of the Greek language when we think today of the domination of the English language. Because if you travel anywhere in the world today, any major city, most minor cities, go into any hotel, any restaurant, somebody there is going to know English. And travel trade, business, worldwide, all happens with English. That's the way it was back in this period of time with Greek. And because the Jewish people were scattered 
due to the Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C., all throughout this region, all of those Jewish people learned Greek. As you probably know, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. But however, in the second century B.C., at the request of Ptolemy II, the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek. And it was done with the help of 72 Jewish translators, six each from the 12 tribes of Israel. The result was this, the Septuagint. The Old Testament translated from Hebrew into Greek that biblical scholars and historians both today consider still the greatest, most important translation of the Bible that has ever happened. And it met an important need in the Jewish community because at the time, very few Jewish people could read Hebrew. Very few could even speak Hebrew. The most widely spoken languages among the Jewish community were Greek and Aramaic. Most importantly, the Septuagint not only allowed Jewish people to remain connected to their word of God, but it also exposed Gentiles or non-Jews to the teachings of the Jewish scriptures, allowing them to learn about the God of Israel. What scripture was the common one that was used by the early church? The Septuagint. Now, how about the New Testament? Well, the New Testament was originally written in Greek. Because Greeks' ability to communicate was unparalleled, still today. I mean, an easy example would be, and we'll see this in in detail next week, an easy example is just the word love. English has one word for love, right? Greek has four different words for love, depending on the kind of love you mean. So it's very nuanced, very specific. Said one Bible commentator, Koine Greek was the greatest language in history. For, commu- for written communication, because through it, many complex and subtle concepts could be communicated with clarity. Greek saturation throughout this vast region would allow the gospel eventually to be spread from one end of the world to the other, and for the New Testament writings to be passed from region to region and to be read and understood with little difficulty. So once we understand the effects of Hellenism on language, we can understand why the New Testament gospel writers, all Jewish men, chose to wrote those, write those letters in Greek and not Hebrew. And it makes total sense why in John chapter 19, as Jesus is being crucified, we read this. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. Hebrew, for Jewish people of the time that could read Hebrew, Latin, for Romans who could read Latin, but Greek, for everybody to read, because Pilate was no idiot. He wanted everybody to know who this person was and what this person was was claiming to be. Says G.L. Archer, the Bible scholar, Greek was the most ideally adapted linguistic medium for the worldwide communication of the gospel in the entire region of the Eastern Mediterranean, Egypt, and the Near East. Accurate in expression, beautiful in sound, and capable of great rhetorical force. 
it furnished an ideal vehicle for the proclamation of God's message to, the, to man. Alexander the Great, Hellenism, the Greek language, the proliferation of that language, a stage perfectly set for the quick communication of an important message worth spreading. Now the Maccabean period. The Maccabees were a Jewish family of the second and first century BC that brought about the restoration of Jewish political and religious life. And they did it as a resistance to Hellenism. After the Greek period closed, we touch upon an event that brought about this restoration and ushered in 100 years of Jewish religious freedom. What was the event? You've heard of the event. You know several people probably that observe this event even today. The event? Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the Hebrew name for the Feast of the Dedication, and its observance by ancient Jews was common. In fact, God included it in our New Testament. Did you know that? When you turn to John chapter 10, we find these words. At that time, the Feast of the Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Feast of the Dedication. Hanukkah, there it is. Jesus observed it just like all Hebrews of his day, and it was established during the intertestamental period. But why? What was the big deal? What is Hanukkah all about? Well, from 175 B.C. to 165 B.C., for that 10-year period of time, a ruler named Antiochus persecuted the Jewish people. Antiochus was a strong believer in Hellenism, and he took the name Epiphanes, which means the manifest God. As you might imagine, the Jewish people didn't like this, and it caused some conflict. Well, in 168 B.C., on the 25th day of the Jewish month of Kislev, which translates in on our calendar the late part of November and the early part of December. Antiochus desecrated the temple in Jerusalem by pouring the most unclean thing, pig's blood, all over the, temp or all over the, uh, the uh, altar in the Holy of Holies. And then he set up an idol of himself and demanded every, every person either worship him or be killed. This prophetic event called the abomination of desolation was spoken of centuries earlier by the prophet Daniel. And in Daniel we read, although the, we mentioned Daniel 9 here, it's actually Daniel 11. So in Daniel 11 you'll find forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. Years later, Jesus himself in Matthew 24 would reference back to Daniel's prophecy in pointing forward to the ultimate abomination of desolation, which will be done by Antichrist during the Great Tribulation. What resulted from Antiochus's action was a revolt, a revolt by the Jewish priests and others who resisted what he was requiring. And exactly three years later to the day, Judah Maccabee led his band of resistance fighters and they won victory over Antiochus' vast army of 47,000 people. They retook Jerusalem, they rededicated the temple, and they cleansed it. 
And it's that rededication that we know as Hanukkah and the feast that was established during the intertestamental period to recognize this event was the feast of the dedication. A few other developments that arose during this intertestamental time that you need to know about. One was the establishment of the Pharisees and Sadducees. You read a lot about them in the New Testament, in the Gospels, and in the book of Acts. They were political leaders, they were religious leaders, and they came about during this intertestamental time. Another development was the establishment of the synagogue. A familiar centerpiece of both cultural and religious Jewish life found in every city with a Jewish presence, where often we find both Jesus and Paul ministering because they had a tradition that visiting high-profile people would be able to stand up and address the assembly. It's a perfect venue for the introduction of new ideas, and it came about during the intertestamental period. Matter of fact, in the New Testament, the words Pharisees and Sadducees are used 87 times. The word synagogue, 68 times. If you go back to the Old Testament, how many times are these words used? No times. Zero times. So what happened? The intertestamental period happened. And then we get to the Roman period. The Roman Empire was one of the greatest and most influential civilizations the world has ever seen, even still today. It lasted for over a thousand years. To put that in comparison, contrast, the United States of America has only been a country for 247 years. So we're not even close. The Roman Imperial Empire is historically considered to have started in 31 BC when Augustus Caesar proclaimed himself the first emperor of Rome. So dominant was the Roman military and so orchestrated was its leadership that for the next 200 years until the year 180 AD, the world was in a period of peace and stability that was enjoyed at like, unlike any other time in ancient history a 200-year period of time where peace reigned throughout the entire Roman Empire. So unique was this period of time that it has its own name, and you've probably heard of it. It's called Pax Romana. Pax Romana. That's Latin for Roman peace. And the scope of this went out through all of the Roman Empire, and on a map, it looks like this. That red reach is the reach of the Roman Empire. And that red reach also reflects the Roman peace. This period of time coincides perfectly with Christ's birth and the establishment and the expansion of the early church. The empire's ordered and efficient roadways and seaport structures allowed the apostles and early church leaders and early believers to travel freely on land or by sea throughout the empire and to send written correspondence through imperially protected methods. It's extraordinary really to think that the roadway systems throughout their empire in large measure built to move their Roman military quickly in part to help squash the fledgling Christianity religion um, served to allow missionaries and the early church believers to spread the same message they were trying to stop throughout their entire Roman Empire. 
It's incredible. Like, like who can figure that out? Who, who could think that up, right? God can do that. It's amazing. It's amazing. That's how come Jesus, at the end of Matthew, which we have recorded for us, and again in Acts, he gives the, what we call the Great Commission to the apostles. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. How could he say that? He could say that because he knew it would happen, because he knew the time they were in, and he knew that Pax Romana was going to allow it. It's incredible. That's also how Paul could go on his three missionary journeys, bouncing all around this area and region of the world. That's also how Paul, when he was under house arrest in Rome in AD 60, wrote a letter. We have that letter in our New Testament. It's called the letter to the Colossians. He wrote that letter to the city of Colossae, 1,300 miles away in present-day Turkey from where he was imprisoned in Rome. He handed that letter knowing and had great confidence that it was going to find its destination, which we know it did. Amazing. Pax Romana. So we find ourselves echoing what is written in the New Testament. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unfathomable his ways. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. At the perfect time. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard and Christian thinker has said, you know, life must be lived forward, but life is understood backward, right? We can all appreciate that. We, we've experienced that in our own life. You know, we are where we are today, making decisions, figuring out what's happening to us, and we can't quite make sense of it. We don't know exactly what is going on. We pray and hope and trust that God is in it, but sometimes we can't see how God is in it. And we lean on that um, verse that says, I can work all things together for good. And you say, okay, I'm really hoping you do that because I can't quite see how that's going to happen in this situation, God. I got to trust you. But looking back, just like we have in just this last 20 minutes or so, looking back over this period of time, you can see clearly the hand of God working through history. And so two things I want to leave us with today. Number one, I want us to be encouraged to recognize that, yes, God is moving history forward. And when we do look back on it, it's kind of crystal clear that he's lining things up and moving things along. And so we can trust. We can trust him that he's doing the same thing right now. Right now. As all kinds of people are moving to Jonesboro, right? All kinds of people are moving to the Tri-Cities, East Tennessee, number one it's been for the last three years on various things, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, where to move in the country, Johnson City. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's crazy, East Tennessee. You can't be at a stoplight anymore and look at people's license plates and not see one from out of state. What's happening? I don't know. Something's going on. Um, culturally, there are things happening that make people a little nervous. What's going on? I don't know how it's going to all work together. Politically, what's going on? You know, I don't know. Um, 
But I do know this. Today's chaos will be tomorrow's clarity. We will be able to look back, or people further along down the road than us will be able to look back on this time and see how it perfectly makes sense. And then finally, I want to encourage all of us that you are where you are for a reason. You're part of the story. I'm part of the story. Those people during Pax Romana that went around the northern part of of Europe and made their way up to France and made their way up to Spain and made their way up to Great Britain and then to Scotland and Ireland, and then at some point they all jumped on boats and they all went across the Atlantic Ocean and they landed here. And here we are, and we've heard about Jesus. They carried the good news with them, and they shared it, and we believed it. And now we have the same part to play. You have the opportunity within your family, within your job, wherever your job finds you, the people that you work with, work around, the places you choose to go eat, where you choose to vacation. Everywhere you go, you take the Holy Spirit with you, and you have the opportunity to be that person that may impact somebody somewhere at some time. And that is extremely encouraging. Nothing is wasted, and you get to play a part, and I get to play a part. Let us be confident in that. Let us be excited about that, and let us, with open minds and open eyes, look for opportunities for God to use us, because he will. Amen. Let's pray with me, if you will, please. Lord, I am amazed, and I think hopefully all of us are a little more amazed at how you work, how you move in history, um, through people who don't even know they're being used, through empires who never assumed that what they were putting together was going to be used for something entirely different. Lord, in our own lives and in this time, help us remember that you are alive and active, and you are moving the history of events the way you want them moved. But Lord, we get to be a part of it. We're excited to be a part of it. Thank you for that. And we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.